Hi folks, it's Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is September 25th, 2015, and this is episode 1652 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Friday, 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 that's right. Time for the Monster Show of the Week. Uh, this is the expert counsel calls for the week. And uh, I'm making a big change today to the expert counsel calls. It's not really a big change. It's just I'm cutting them in half. And this is why. We've started to get to three-hour shows. And some of you guys like that. But I've heard from enough people that don't like it to realize there's a lot more that don't like it than do. I also realize if you're starved for content, there's over 1,650 episodes. Use the search box. You can get as much content as you want from TSP. Folks, I listen to shows that I did, you know, three, four years ago and go, man, I forgot that I knew that. Uh, so it's probably the case that you could, you know, learn from those older shows too. Um, in fact, I want to let you guys know right up front today, I'm going to try to work on over the next month paring down these shows and getting all shows down to 90 minutes or less. Um, there'll be an occasional show that goes long, like there always has been, but I feel like the, the shows have gotten too long. I'm not really worried about if there's, you know, 90 minutes plus 15 minutes of content in the beginning with the history segment, the advertising, the housekeeping, because if you guys want to skip any of that, you can. But the main content of the show, I'd like to keep in that 60 to 90 minute range like it was in the in the beginning, um, just because I think that it, it, it fits more people's lifestyles that way. And frankly, guys, every hour of audio you hear is is, is five to six hours of work for me. In, in many instances. Um, a lot of the stuff that we have to do to produce this show is things that if you don't produce a podcast, it, it, it seems like it must not take a lot of time, but it does. And I need to pare down a little bit myself and give myself a little bit of a break so I can see this farm uh, here on my property. i got a lot of stuff to do this this uh, this fall that has got to get done so that we go into next spring and we don't get caught behind the power curve like we did this year with a lot of things. Um, the next thing I wanted to let you guys know is next week we have the event. It starts on Wednesday, technically. I, I think there might not be any TSP next week at all. But I don't want to leave you nothing. So this was what my thought was. And I, I'd like to hear from you guys over the weekend what your thoughts are. What I was thinking is next week, as we're getting ready for the event, as I'm doing things on the property, I could be shooting four- and five-minute YouTube videos left and right, uploading them, no video notes, no nothing, a quick title, upload, boom, phone takes it from there. And that way that you guys would get a, a look at the whole week, what, what a whole week is like here. And this wouldn't be high production video. It would be very similar to what we do with the Duck Chronicles. It just wouldn't be focused only on the ducks. It would be, you know, we're bringing in some fill dirt. We're going down to pick up some material. Nick Ferguson's here working on this because Nick's going to be here either Sunday or Monday. Uh, and I, I think it would just be easier for me, and I could still get you guys content, and it would be very easy off-the-cuff stuff. That's what I think I'm going to have to do next week. Kind of like guerrilla podcasting, but doing it on YouTube. All right, so that's probably going to be next week. Before we get into your uh, expert questions this week, uh, I didn't really explain the cutting in half. So what I mean is I am now sending all expert council members at the first of the month basically two questions. And then they have a week or two to get those back to me. And then over the next month, I'm going to play each of the, their answers on a show. And that's going to take the expert council from being 13 a week down to six to seven a week. We have six today. 
even though we have a lot more answers in queue. So we're going to cut that timeline out. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day, number one today, BulkAmmo.com. When I need ammo and I want it in bulk, I go to BulkAmmo.com. Why? Because the name says what you're going to get. Ammo in bulk at great prices with lightning-fast shipping. How fast is their shipping? It's almost like this. I've placed my order. I go on about my day, and I hear, Gee, who's that? It's the postman with my ammo. How did that happen? It's not quite that fast, but it feels that fast. I think for most of us to think, you know what I should do? I should run out to the you know sporting goods store or whatever and, and bulk up on ammo this week. By the time you got around to doing it, it could be sitting on your doorstep. That's how quick their shipping is. They have all of the common cal calibers, great pricing, excellent service, and they're a long-term sponsor. They've been with us for, I think, four years now. So when you need ammo and you need it in bulk, Get on over to Bulk Ammo. Remember, ammo is one of the three components to the, the, the triangle of gun operator effectiveness. You've got to have the weapon. You go to a gunfight without a gun, you got a problem. You, the operator, needs training. But even with a good operator and a good firearm, without the ammo, man, that's the terminal tackle, as we say in fishing. You've got to have the ammo to put food on the table, to protect life and property, and to train effectively. Check out BulkAmmo.com today. And remember, they do do a discount for members of the Support Brigade. Just take the benefits section of your MSB for more information on that. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Sawtooth Tactical. You'll find them over at sawtac.com. You'll get all the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle if you get on over to Sawtac. Veteran-owned, veteran-operated, and nestled in the wilderness of the Sawtooth Mountains. That's why they call them Sawtac. And when I say everything, I mean everything from the awesome manly titanium spork, Maxpedition bags, Magpul magazines, SOE tactical gear, and everything else you can think of. If it's tactical, they have it at Sawtooth Tactical. Remember the website again, www.sawtac.com. And they also do do a discount for members of the support brigade. So if you're a member and you're going to get some tactical material from Sawtac, Get into your MSB account, click on Benefits, and look up Sawtac and get that discount. Again, a veteran-owned, veteran-operated company nestled in the sawtooth wilderness of Idaho, sawtac.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. We have this year in 1652 from Alex Shrugged at TSP Wiki, Queen Christina converts to Catholicism. We have the Latrine of New England, Places Limits on Slavery. And Cape Town is founded. I'm going to read The Latrine of New England Places Limits on Slavery just because the title got me. The Latrine of New England? Well, Rhode Island has become the dumping ground for all of New England's undesirables. It's called The Latrine of New England. If you live in Rhode Island, did you know that? I didn't know that. Um, it is still getting organized, and Rhode Island legislature passes a law limiting slavery to 10 years maximum so that black and Indians can fall in line with the ways of Englishmen They mean being treated like English indentured. That means being treated like English indentured servants. The punishment for noncompliance is a fine of 40 pounds, which is a considerable amount of money. Apparently, they can only enforce the law in Providence. Other Rhode Island towns refuse to comply. The legislature will try again in a few years to limit slavery, but that won't work either. Puritans don't particularly like slavery, but it is a part of the life during these times, so they roll with it. My take by Alex Shrug. Roger Williams was the original founder of Providence, Rhode Island. He didn't like the idea of slavery, but during the Indian Wars, male Indian prisoners of war could not be trusted, and they didn't have prisons to put them in, so they were often sold into slavery to faraway places like Barbados. 
Roger actually bought an Indian boy as a slave, but in my sense of reading his account is that he was saving the boy. I don't know if the Indian boy was a Christian, but it is common to limit slavery to a fixed term if the slave agreed to convert. A good example of this is in the novel Robinson Crusoe by Daniel Defoe. When Crusoe and his Muslim servant are rescued at sea, the captain offers Crusoe free passage, but the captain wants to buy the Muslim boy as a slave. Crusoe is reluctant, so the captain agrees to keep the boy for 10 years as a servant if he converts to Christianity. The boy agrees, and he is sold to the captain. Interesting, huh? Government choosing a lesser of two evils. We can't just not have slavery. But we can have slavery for a term until we completely indoctrinate the slave to our way of thinking, and then we'll set him free, where he'll probably continue to work for his master because his employment options aren't really that great, and we'll create an entire lower class of society uh, that is seen as servants even once they're free. Uh, but they'll, 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 they'll take on our faith, whatever it may be, and our way of doing things, and we will indoctrinate them so that they can be exactly what we want them to be as a piece of our society as long as they know their place. You draw your conclusions to modern terms, guys. I'm gonna let that one go today and move on from there. Anyway, um, I want to just remind you guys real quick about the Members Support Brigade. Hey, if you like my show, you love what I do, you want to help support it, you want to help great content like you're going to get today from six great expert council members, keep coming to you. MSB is the way to do that. Without the MSB, there is no survival podcast. It's a full-time endeavor for me. It could not happen. It could not be done. It is the life and blood of the show. That's what you are as a listener, and that's how you can be more of that is by supporting my work. Go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters all qualify for a discount if you email me before, not after you join with TSPC service discount in the subject line. One sentence, tell me about your service. Everybody else, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members. And really, I want you to think about that. I want you to think about, I mean, I don't push the MSB really hard. I just kind of mentioned it once a show. But it, when you listen to this show, if you think it's worth 20 cents, Consider joining, because that's what it comes out to, 20 cents an episode. All right, with that, let's uh, go ahead and get into your first question for today's show. This one is for Darby Simpson, who is here to take all your questions on farming for profit, really, at kind of mid, mid to large scale, and uh, homesteading as well, and setting up homesteads to produce food, specifically an expert in livestock, beef, pork, Pastured poultry, chickens, uh, turkeys, those are his mainstays. He has a question today that comes in from Michael. Michael says, um, fall is on the way. This is a hugely busy time for farmers. Then it slows down for winter. Can you discuss the transition from going from 90 to nothing every day into a slower period of winter? Darby, what is that like for a guy like you that's out there killing themselves basically from March till Thanksgiving every year, and what do we do with that downtime in the winter to make sure we're ready for it all again when the spring comes? Hey, Jax, this is Darby Simpson calling in to answer Michael's question about what it is we do with our downtime through the winter here at the farm. And, uh, Michael, you really hit on something in your email where you said we go from 90 to nothing in a short period of time. And uh, it, it certainly does always feel that way to us each fall. Um, you know, basically from the middle of March through Thanksgiving, it, it's 
typically, you know, 10 to 12 hours a day, occasionally 16 or 18 hours a day, uh, six days a week. And, you know, Sundays are a short day, and even with a minimum of inputs, that's still a, you know, a three or four, sometimes a five-hour workday. So once winter rolls around, we're definitely ready to slow down and get some rest. Um, It's not like I'm without anything to do here in the winter. Um, I do have a a winter, indoor winter farmer's market that I personally do every Saturday, uh, November through April. Uh, we've always got, you know, some cattle that are here through the winter, and uh, uh, sometimes, uh, typically, we'll have a few pigs that we're running through the winter, so we've got some product that's ready uh, in March and April when our freezer starts to run low. Um, but, you know, by and large, my, you know, work on the farm each day during that three-month downtime is usually an hour and I can get it done quicker than an hour if I if I need to and uh, what that really allows me to do is is number one is to to focus on resting you know physically and mentally Um, the more I get into this the further I get into it having been doing this full-time since April of 2010 so five years um, I really feel as though we are wired up by our creator to be in sync with nature. Uh, honestly, I really don't have a hard time keeping up with the demands and the schedule through the summer. Um, it's not always easy, but uh, you know, it's just kind of like we're wired to work with nature and starts in the spring and it kind of peaks in late summer, you know, August, early September, and then it starts to slow down and you just go, go, go. Uh, but as so long as you can get a rest in the winter, what I find is that it's, uh, it's really, you know, it's, it's possible to, to pull that off. You got to pace yourself and there's some pitfalls to watch out for, but by and large it, it, you know, it can be done. It can be done. So, um, Beyond just resting, you know, physically uh, from the labor, it gives me a, a mental rest. It gives me time to just let my body recuperate and um, kind of get restored from, you know, being put through the ringer all summer. And then, you know, beyond resting, uh, some productive things that I like to do personally is there's a, a lot of study that I get done in the winter. Uh, I don't really have much time to read in the summer. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's a lot of articles and books and things like that that I read and study and get into that kind of helps me formulate um, a plan moving forward, you know, in the next year, the next five years, the next ten years, kind of like where we're headed with our farm. A lot of great conferences take place this time of year. Here in the Midwest, you've always got the uh, the Acres USA conference that takes place in early December, and then you've got the Moses conference up in Wisconsin. Um, you've got uh, Permaculture Voices that takes place in early March, uh, and then there's a lot of other smaller conferences that take place. Uh, I also do a lot of writing in the winter. Anybody that's been out on my blog knows that I really love to write, and uh, I don't get to write as much in the summer as I would like. Those that follow the blog know that. You know, I'm lucky if I get one article a month out there. So, 
you know, that's uh, some things that I do. Um, just kind of keep myself educated and learning about new trends and seeing what other people are up to. Um, just ways we can be more efficient and more profitable uh, here with our farm and uh, looking at, at systems that require less input and give us more output. Those are the kinds of things that, that I'm studying. And then, like, I do all my planning as much as I can, particularly once I, you know, start to get into January. Um, one big thing I get knocked out is I literally print out a calendar, and I get all of my poultry figured out. And I'll, you know, call the hatchery. You know, can I get 500 broiler chicks, you know, you know these, these dates on these weeks throughout the summer? And I, I call my butcher, and I get all my dates on the calendar there uh, for the the just the chickens and the, the turkeys going into Thanksgiving. Actually, I scheduled the, the turkeys uh, the, the prior Thanksgiving. But um, I get all that lined out. Uh, we get our, our bulk chicken program launched in early February. Get that filled out. Usually by the beginning of March, that thing is sold out. We've got some income coming in that way. And then we'll you know look at these these big chunks of cash coming in and it's like okay well what do we you know what projects do we need to do well we need to build this fence over here okay well what's that going to cost i'll do cost estimates i'll get my contractors lined up um i I look at you know other projects that i might need to do might need to build um usually try to knock out a smaller project or two in the middle of march when it's decent enough to work outside um, but, you know, it's, it's cold enough. You're not going to be out there all day, uh, you know, but we're just trying to kind of get a jump on the season and particularly with big projects like fence or something like that, you, you really got to start planning a couple of months in advance and get your contractors all lined up before everybody else does. Um, so th- those are some other things I do. Um, and then, you know, just working on business stuff, thinking about marketing plans. Um, if you're thinking about adding or making a change on a farmer's market, talking with people through the winter, figuring out, like, what your next move is. Or my wife and I will have a lot of conversations about, yeah, you know, this kind of seeing like this this segment of our sales was down over here, and we think this is why, so we needed to make this change. Or this this segment of sales was was stronger and, and better than we expected, so what can we do to enhance that? Um, just a lot of that kind of stuff that you really don't have time when you're in the middle of producing all this stuff in that nine-month window to really you know chew on and digest as deeply as you would like to. Those are a lot of really great productive things that, that we try and do in that, that three to three-and-a-half-month window. And then Obviously, if we're able to take a vacation, that's typically when that occurs too. And getting away is important. We have not been able to do that as often as I would like, um, but it's something we definitely want to try and focus on moving forward to be able to take a week and go somewhere and just, you know, relax completely, get away from the farm because this is a lifestyle. It is not a job. You're tied to it 24 hours a day, and getting that true mental physical spiritual break is is really important so but beyond that um this is really a time that we focus on spending together as a family i mean we're, we're together all day every day anyhow uh because we homeschool our kids and i work here full time but uh it just gives us a chance to really you know 
connect as a family and spend time together. And uh, there's a, a lot of board games that get played uh, with my kids in the afternoons during the winter and just hanging around, out around the, uh, the wood stove and being a family, you know, maybe watching a movie together. That is so important because it is just nuts in the summer. It's as nuts as anyone who is listening to this thinks it is. It's like way crazier. You just can't understand how crazy it is until you're in it. So... Anyway, Michael, those are some of the things that I typically try and do uh, in the winter. And uh, it, it works for me, works for us. So hopefully those are some pointers that you can apply uh, to yourself moving forward. And, man, if you got some more questions, feel free to shoot me an email. Happy to chat with you about it. To learn more about me, please feel free to go out to my website at DarbySimpson.com. You can... Uh, Read a bunch of uh, free articles out there on all aspects of farming. You can also sign up for the blog newsletter if you'd like to do so. That'll just give you an alert anytime I post something new. And for those of you who are interested in going deeper, I do offer one-on-one consulting. And if you are a uh, TSP MSB member, you do receive a 10% discount on those consulting services. As always, everyone have a great weekend. And Jack, thanks a bunch. Take care. Um, what I'd like to add is kind of what I do during this time. I take a lot of downtime myself during this period. I am not a religious person, uh, so I don't get really big into the religious celebration of Christmas or what have you. But I am a, a big believer in tradition. And I feel that when, when you know people get all upset because somebody says, well, happy holidays, it doesn't upset me. I think if that upsets you, you have a problem. I think you really do. I, now, I think be, if you're upset that somebody is forced to say that and prevented from saying Merry Christmas or, or whatever, then I get that. But I think if you just are so tweaked out that when somebody says Happy Holidays, you're like, oh, Christmas. Because um, here's what I mean when I say Happy Holidays. For about the week leading up to Thanksgiving, especially kind of that Wednesday before, all the way through to New Year's, that entire period of time for me is the holidays. I find that if, if you stay away from box stores where people on, on Black Monday or whatever, when people kill each other over a, a flat screen TV set, people are better to each other. People are just better to each other. Winter's on the way, but it's not fully here, so you get cold air, cool nights, you, you, you put a little bit of extra clothing on when you go outside and feel good about it. Um, there's still abundance coming from the land. The animals are getting ready for winter. It's hunting season. It's it's family time. People travel and get together. And to me, it's a big pause. I, I don't stop working for that whole period of time. Those of you that know me know, Wednesday there's usually some kind of show, special show for Thanksgiving that's pre-recorded. So Wednesday till you know through Black Monday, I'm I don't do nothing for Thanksgiving except eat turkey and spend time with my family. And then Christmas, I do something similar for a longer period of time. Um, the 23rd is the last day that the show's published. There's a special show that goes up, so really I'm off that day. And until the Monday after New Year's Day, whatever that is, I'm gone. Uh, or until the first workday after New Year's Day. So if New Year's was on, if New Year's Day was Wednesday, then the show would come back Thursday. And I, I just take that time. And then there's a lot of other time in there where it's not... You know, we're not going so much. Right now, we're working so much harder because we have baby quails and baby ducks. And, 
you know, I can have a hundred ducks, I can have two hundred ducks. The work, other than you know, Dorothy picking up the eggs for that amount of ducks, is the same. But babies have to be constantly paid attention to. And I'm, I'm running season two of the Duck Chronicles. And you get to a point where you're just like, I don't have, I can't, you know, and I ran a lifetime member sale. That's more work than most of you guys realize. And uh, you, you, you get to a point where you're just like, you're going, you're going, you're going, you're going, you're going, you're going, you're going. You're going. I, I need a break. And I, I realize that I sit here and I tell you guys all the time to do that yourself. And I always try to check myself. And every once in a while I'll say, you know what, dude, I don't care what needs to be done. Make a cup of tea, go sit and just check out your, your work that you've already done. Just enjoy what you've done. Or turn the TV on and listen to some stupid nonsense or read a book or just chill. But in the winter, I do a lot more of that. And, and I think it's a good time of year for it. And I think human beings, especially in temperate climates, have evolved to do that. And if you look at the life of a farmer or a rancher or anybody in that type of industry, it's a natural cycle and flow. And that's because the and I think if you if you actually looked at professions, the closer you get to a natural behavior of a human, the more the seasonality of flow of work and rest you'll see. Because that's not natural for us, you know. Especially if you think of hunter-gatherers, you're doing a lot of your hunting and gathering to get ready for winter, really, really heavy, right up till that November, December time. And then January and February and March, you try to get through those periods with what you have. You have a lot of time to bond with your, you know, your village, your tribe, your family. And I think the closer we can get to that, the better. So I just wanted to kind of add that in because, like I told you guys yesterday, you're under 100 days from Christmas right now. It's going to come fast. And we can get caught up in a lot of things during that period of time. But this is the survival podcast, and that's about things like not giving yourself a coronary. And I think the pause is a big way to do that. I think we would live longer, and I think the number of years we have are going to be more useful to us if we reduce stress, especially as we get older. And I don't even mean like, well, when you're old, you won't be as stressed. Well, don't bet on that. But what I mean is if you spend your 30s, your 40s, and your 50s stressed the hell out all the time, your decline in health as you go into those golden years, as they call them, is going to be more rapid. I believe that. Anyway, that's my addition. Not really the spirit of the question, but it's what I felt compelled to add to it. Let's take a question now for Chef Keith Snow. We have a, a question for Chef Keith on making and using pesto. Chef Keith, tell us all about pesto. Here's your warning, guys. You're about to be hungry. Hey, Chef Keith Snow from HarvestEating.com. I want to answer Jan's question about using pesto. Now, first of all, for those of you that aren't familiar with pesto, pesto is a basil condiment. Now, if you're in France, in the south of France, and you're leaving places like Marseille, um, Along the Mediterranean there, very beautiful. You start to head, is it east? Yeah, you start to head east. You'll go past Monaco and Monte Carlo and places like that. And eventually, you will cross the Italian border. When you do that, it's very rocky coastline there along the Mediterranean. You're going to see greenhouses all over the place, up and down the hills, tons and tons of greenhouses. And they're chock full of basil. Now, this is known as a Ligurian region. They call that area of the Mediterranean the Ligurian Sea. If you keep driving a little further, you go, it winds around and eventually you get to Genoa. And Genoa is the birthplace, that region there, the birthplace of pesto, pesto sauce. 
So that's what they're famous for. You see a lot of pesto dishes there. And uh, that's why they call that very standard type uh, basil that I've got in my garden right now called uh, Genovese basil. It's just a big, uh, broad leaf, very green, bushy basil plant. Excellent, easy to grow. Um, so pesto is basil leaves that are ground up. Um, and usually, traditionally, they'll do it. They're not going to use a food processor. They'll use a mortar and a pestle. But it's ground up, and it has uh, pignoli nuts, which are pine nuts. Very expensive nut. One of the most expensive nuts has one of the most high fat contents of any nuts. Therefore, it goes rancid very quickly. So don't buy large quantities of pine nuts. You'll have to freeze them, and then they tend to get freezer burned because they have such a high fat content. But anyway, it's basil, pine nuts, olive oil, garlic, and... Um, Parmesan cheese, usually, or Romano cheese. Now, there's a zillion variations on pesto. So that's just an idea of how to make it. But each chef in the region will, you know, you can make it with walnuts. There's plenty of ways. You can make cilantro pesto. I've got a video on harvesteating.com. It's a, what is it? It's like a butternut squash risotto with a sage and cashew pesto. So it's a general idea. Classically, it's made from basil. Now that we have that established, how do you use this stuff? A lot of people grow it, and this is what happens, and it happens to me too. It's a wonderful thing to grow, and all of a sudden you've got big bushes of this, and towards the end of the year, that's that stuff wants to go to seed and start to shoot up these one- or two-inch-long weird-looking things. Now, if you want to keep your plant going a little longer, go out there with a scissor and cut those off. That's called deadheading. You want to get those things off your basil plant. That will encourage the leaves to grow. Like I've seen it sometimes where the leaves look really um, wimpy and not too great, and there's a lot of those um, areas where it's trying to go to seed. You cut them off, you go back a week later, and you'll see a lot more leaf development. So what do you do with all the pesto? Some people will, will grind it up, and they'll put it into ice cubes and freeze it, and that's great. But I'm going to show you a great way to use it and make a pesto chicken dish, which is awesome. So first of all, you want to take a chicken breast or chicken thighs. Now I'm definitely partial to chicken thighs. They're a lot juicier and they have more character, but there's a lot of dark meat wusses out there. So if you're a dark meat wuss, get yourself a chicken breast and try to buy the most natural, chemical-free, um, humanely raised. You get the idea one that you can stand. And um, if you're using a chicken breast, I do suggest that you pound it out thin or, or ask your butcher to do it for you. So once it's pounded out thin or if you're using chicken thighs, what you want to do is to keep it gluten-free, take potato starch. You can find that from Bob's Red Mill in just about any supermarket. Buy some potato starch and you can just coat the chicken in potato starch. Now, in a like a skillet, I would say a wide skillet over medium heat, a couple tablespoons of extra virgin olive oil, let that heat up. Do not put the chicken in a cold pan. So the pan is warm, put the oil in there. When that oil is dancing a bit, lay your um, potato starch crusted chicken in there and don't mess around with it. Just leave it on one side. If you're going to do anything, take your pan and rotate the pan on the burner, but don't be moving the chicken around. You want to build a nice brown crust on the bottom. So with the chicken breast, if you've pounded it thin, and definitely do that step. You don't want inch-thick, inch-and-a-half-thick chicken breasts because they do swell up a bit. Um, you want it nice and thin. So you turn it over. Once it's good and brown, you take it out of the pan. Now, back into the pan with another tablespoon of olive oil and one or two garlic cloves 
finely, finely minced and about two tablespoons of finely minced shallot. Put that in there and just give it a brief sweat. And then you're going to go into the pan with one cup of high-quality chicken broth, a quarter cup of your made-up pesto. Put a quarter cup of the pesto in there and then whisk this together and start to reduce it out. Now, you want to reduce this down by about half. Then you're going to put in a quarter cup of beautiful organic heavy cream. Now, that's got a high water content too. Even though it's thick cream, you got to reduce that down a bit. And this should um, be seasoned. Now, you want to be careful because if your chicken broth comes from a box and it has salt, you don't want to put in a heap of salt. Taste it a little bit, um, but maybe a little bit of salt. And definitely, um, once it starts to reduce down, it starts to thicken up a bit. Be careful that you don't blast it with the heat because you can separate and break it. You don't want it to break, and then you'll have an oil slick. So keep whisking it together. And as it reduces down, it starts to look um, beautiful. Turn it off. You can put a little bit of Parmesan cheese in it. Taste it again. Make sure it has a wonderful um, level of seasoning. And then what I like to do is you've just turned it off. It's still hot. Now you can plate your chicken breasts off and then take this sauce and just pour and, you know, be generous. And if you want to put the chicken uh, breast or chicken thighs over, you know, egg noodles or some kind of a pasta by all means, do it. It's great just on a plate like it is. You don't even need any starch under it. And you pour that sauce over it, and you have delicious stuff. I would garnish that with a few basil leaves, but I've made that quite a few times um, during the basil season this year. And the kids absolutely love it. You wouldn't think, you know, basil's got a pesto, flavorful stuff, man, really, really flavorful. But the kids love it. A little bit of that chicken broth and cream, it really uh, makes a nice sauce. So, um, do give that a try, and uh, I hope that really works out for you. And I want to thank everybody there in the TSP audience for supporting Harvest Eating. And I'm going to plug my cookbook. I don't think I – I don't even remember ever doing that. Those of you who don't know, if you go to Amazon.com or check the show notes for a link, um, I wrote a cookbook several years ago. It's over 300 pages. It's a hardcover book. You can get copies of it on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. But it has over 200 recipes, loads of photographs. And, uh, hey, you listen to me every week. Why not read the cookbook? You can get it sometimes for as little as five or six bucks. So do that. And uh, with that, I hope you have a great weekend. And um, thank you all for supporting Harvest Eating and also the Survival Podcast. Jack, thanks so much, man. I'm out. Okay, I have a, a few things to add to this as far as making pesto, just making it and with some variations. Um, not the last time, I think it was the time before we were up at Elijah Spring, uh, Kevin and Charlie's uh, Permethos Farm in West Virginia. Um, it was either Kevin or Charlie or one of their wives. Somebody made pesto, and they made it with, you know, the Parmesan cheese, the olive oil, the basil, and dun-dun-dun, black walnut. It was Freaking fantastic. Anybody that's ever eaten black walnut knows there's this kind of a bite to them. It's a, it's definitely different than your English Carpathian walnuts. It's, it's really unique tasting. And it can be a little bit overpowering for some people to just start eating. I love it, but for some people it's a bit overpowering. But mixed in with this, the bite against the basil and the cheese and, oh, so awesome. And I am the non-bread guy, the bread Nazi would have you, but I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, 
you can do worse than getting yourself a good focaccia bread and putting a little bit of pesto on it. And do a pesto on a focaccia bread um, with a bruschetta or bruschetta, depending on how you decide to, to say it, which is basically tomatoes, basil, uh, some, some sweet peppers, some garlic, and olive oil. And those two together fantastic and we all have to enjoy ourselves with a little bit of a carb out every once in a while and that's one of the ways that I would do that I would rather do that than eat like deep fried food way because way healthier for you way less bad sourdough good real sourdough toasted with a little bit of garlic and olive oil uh, under the broiler and then with a pesto on it bam just there now another variation on pesto that I've had which is fantastic and gives a bite as well is arugula. And what you'll find a lot of times, you can grow arugula later in the year or earlier in the year than you can get basil crop because basil is a warm weather plant. But arugula has this nutty bite. And it's great. And so I've had arugula pesto made with pine nuts, just like Chef Keith said. So it has me thinking, what would it be like to have those two bites together, that black walnut and that arugula? And here's the good news. If you don't have... Uh, black walnut trees growing in your backyard where you can crack your own black walnuts, which is a frustrating thing to do, but you, you know, sooner or later you get enough to make it worth doing. Um, they are available commercially. Usually if you go down the baking aisle where all the stuff is for uh, making cookies and stuff like that, there's little bags of, of, of different nuts, you know, almonds and pecan pieces and stuff like that, and you can usually find black walnuts there. And ooh, pecan-based pesto. No idea. Can't see where it won't work. Gonna try it. Uh, get creative with the process here, right? Because what it is is basically a cheese in the form of Parmesan. And that's, that's I, I would stick to Parmesan there. There's probably a few other hard Italian cheeses that would work, but Parmesan's the, the, the thing. A fat in the form of olive oil. A fatty nut of some sort, a crunch, a bite, and a vegetative component, a green. And I think we could come up with a lot of different things to make and call a pesto-style sauce. And that's what I love about Chef Keith. He focuses on the technique over the recipe. Here's a recipe, but let's understand the technique so you can modify it and use it for yourself. Try some of that stuff, guys. It's great. And uh, on, the, on the basil, I have grown basil plants in a single season sometimes where the stalk is like a tree. And you can almost, like, if you live in a south where you have long seasons... You can let that stuff go to seed. You can collect all that seed off of it for reseeding. And you can coppice that, let's say, about a foot off the ground. And it'll just blow a whole new crop of leaf for you. And it'll all be young, sweet, tender leaf, especially that Genovese basil that the chef keeps talking about. Anyway, now I'm hungry, but we got to plug along. I have a question for Ben Falk. Uh, this was a new one for me, and it's a very interesting concept. It says, a uh, question for Ben Falk. This is from Julia. This is an extension of a post he made on Regrarian's Facebook page. question is, how would lifeboating work in practice as a way of keeping our government oligarchy from destroying the ecosystem beyond repair? Uh, it's a pretty deep question. I'm going to let Ben answer it, and I might have some additions after doing it, including explaining to us what lifeboating actually is. Hi, Jack and all. Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design. Uh, that's a really difficult question about lifeboating and how essentially getting small or even kind of larger groups of people together to create functional systems um, and, and kind of sufficient and thriving systems in the face of 
dysfunctional, scarcity-based, um, self-destructing systems, you know, the world over, how to do that, um, where to do it, how many people to do it with, and, and how can that be done in a way that keeps our government slash oligarchy, as you've said, from destroying the ecosystem beyond repair. Um, the short answer is I don't know. And the long answer is also I don't know. Um, I think I have some, maybe a few insights about it. Um, I don't think I'm, I'm particularly an expert at it. I, I've been working um, at you know, doing this on my own small piece of 10 acres and also on a, on a larger piece of 175 acres and also with clients on various other pieces of land of different sizes. But, you know, they're all in their first five to 10 plus years. You know, none of these things have gone a generation. Um, so I think we have to look at historical examples. I mean, I think in one assessment, like there is no, you know, keeping large you know, ecosystems as a whole from being destroyed um, until things get much worse and there's real like true kind of revolutionary movements. Um, I mean, th those are starting, but I think we're, we're pretty far off in this country. Just things aren't really bad enough uh, for most people or for almost anyone just yet. Um, you know, in, in some of the world, people's land base is being stolen from them on the daily violently. And so people are starting to resist um, you know, the best example I know of historically that may come to mind is, um, the coconut revolution. If you Google that film called the coconut revolution, it's, um, Bougainville, uh, Eastern I Island off of Papua New Guinea, where, um, native people managed to basically, um, destroy a mine that was destroying them and their land base and they blew the mine up and they killed a lot of miners and they said you know no more you guys are, are done with this place and um we're forcing you to leave and that was successful for quite a long period of time i think recently they may have been reopening this panguna mine but basically was a good example of, of a true eco revolution um you know, I don't know if it's it's lasted, but it, it did work for a number of decades. Um, so, you know, it's difficult. I think in this country, um, we're really comfortable right now for the most part. Not everyone, but uh, uh, any of us who are discussing this, um, at least in this forum, might be. Um, a lot of us are. And, and our land base isn't being... It's being taken from us and destroyed for sure, but in a lot of insidious ways. And so it's just not so in our face um, as to mount, you know, to force large resistance being mounted. I think the most important thing is for groups of people to buy up as much land as possible and to regenerate that land as quickly as possible and to create strong ties with each other and thriving kind of smaller scale localized economic systems so they, so they are less dependent on the larger system. So there, as Buckminster Fuller said, um, you know, creating a model that makes the other model obsolete. Now, in th that's great theoretically. In practice, it's hard to make the whole global economy obsolete. We all depend on it some way, shape, or form. I mean, the fact that you're listening to this through the internet and I'm announcing this to you on my MacBook, you know, we're all dependent on the system. So the challenge is how do you create systems that, that you depend on, which, which, those systems destroy you that you depend on, but you have to use those tools to also 
create a better way. And, and that's the kind of conundrum that we're all within. Unless we fully check out to an off-grid, you know, primitive tech world, which I'm not saying don't do, but it's certainly not the path I've chosen, even though I keep thinking about that um, and even practicing with some of those skills. Um, that may be one option as well. Uh, I think, you know, one hope is that the larger system, which is destroying us and our life support systems, comes to a, a either a grinding or a, a relatively quick halt um, quickly enough that there's some thread still left intact uh, of a viable biosphere, um, although it will be nasty on the way down. It, I mean, it is, be, it, it is nasty on the way down. We're, we're, we're in that process. It's not yet to happen. Um, but hopefully, you know, that, that kind of senescence period of, of, of the modern industrial world, um, is that succession is, is accelerated. Um, even though again, it, it will have its destructiveness and its violence, um, most definitely. Uh, and it is, it is having that right now. Um, that senescence is key to make way for new life. You know, we need that forest fire to happen. Um, but we need those groups of people working on solid systems and proving systems and, and dialing systems in to grow up in the wake of that fire. Um, and that's, I think, what hopefully a lot of us are, are working with now. Um, I wish I had more specific examples for you. I think Jack will probably have a lot to add to this. He's made a real study of this um, with historical examples. Um, but... You know, I want to say, oh, we just form intentional communities and communes and all that, but that's also that's not that's also full of its own problems, and we know that's really essentially impossible to do without a binding uh, common ground, like in the in, in the form of religion, and even then, or family, and even then, they don't always work out. I'm not saying it's not something to do. Certainly, if you can get a good group of friends together and form some kind of community. Uh, hopefully one that you're in mutual benefit from one another rather than kind of imposed from the top down or contrived all the better. But, um, that, that's a difficult thing to do. Um, it's not necessarily available to some of us depending on our social capital. Um, but get people together, get your people close at hand and, and get your land base close at hand and do great things and inspire others and try to, um, kind of, I think, live low on the hog, have very little um, vulnerabilities in terms of tax liability. I think I think being taxed into oblivion is, is one of the real things to uh, be careful of. And it's easy when you're adding value to a place to increase that vulnerability. And that's one way to get stopped. That's one other thing to mention. Um, thanks for the question. It's a difficult one. So it's a lot to think about. Now, my thoughts on this are a little bit different, and I, I'm beginning more and more to see that we have to work with what we have in a lot of ways, especially in the the small scale environments where I think a lot of this stuff gets easier. And I'm I'm going to do a show when we come back the week after next, specifically dedicated to you people with small scale land parcels. I'm talking tenth to a quarter of an acre suburban landscapes and what can be done with them and how much really can be done with them, but Here's what I mean by that. So to me, lifeboating is is what Ben's doing. Ten acres of 
I mean, you got to go there someday, folks. Go to one of Ben's PDCs or classes just to go to his property and just to see what he's done in 10 years with this the, the side of a mountain that, that you know was basically destroyed three times in 200 years. It was destroyed to a level and then destroyed to another level and then destroyed to another level. And what, the, 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 the regenerative processes in place there are unbelievable. And those are important. But like Ben said, so and I've, I'm guilty of this too. I want to do this. I want to. I want to do you know 2.0 of permaethos and do the original plan and have a place where people can come and have an acre of their own and have this big community and all. But it is, you know, fraught with problems and all. And the reality is, we all we all work for a living one way or another, and that means we're all in a place. And I think we need to be building this this lifeboat system into wherever we are, wherever you are which is proving that what you do can work and developing things that can be replicated by your neighbors. And that's why I think we should be working with as appropriate technology as possible. Low-cost, simple, low-impact, long-term solutions that when your neighbor looks at it and goes, that's really great, I wish I could do that, I'll come over Saturday and help you. And I think that's what it's going to take. And what I think we're, instead of lifeboat, I think we need to start thinking more like life-saving islands. The, the the whole damn world is becoming a sea of destruction. And what we're building really aren't little lifeboats but islands uh, where we can have community that's not coerced, that's not just, okay, we're here for this purpose, that we can have people do, like let's say the urban farming guys are doing in one of the worst neighborhoods in the, in the, in the country and starting to spread out like an island that as things get worse, people start climbing on the island. And start improving it and making it better. And the islands get bigger. I, I don't think that the concept of you know ecological revolution with violence can work anymore. I think on an island, if you want to kill a bunch of miners who aren't really the problem in the first place, it's the mining company that pays them to be there, you, you can make it work for a time. But like Ben said, they're opening the mine up again. In this country, I think if that was tried, I think the jackbooted thugs would be sent and even the cops and the, uh, the the enforcers that consider themselves the good guys would say, you're the bad guys. They wouldn't understand what you're doing. It wouldn't make sense. I mean, one of the things we need to understand about the American Revolution and the work of Thomas Paine with the pamphlet Common Sense was what that was really about. That was a case to the colonists that basically said, this is why revolution should occur. That was getting their buy-in so that when a revolution came that they would be there to support it and fight it. And there was, of course, the loyalists. But without the support, not just of those who showed up as militiamen and became part of the Continental Regulars, but without the support of the farmers, without the support of the landowners, without the support of the common people, just as much as the need for, for the alliance with France, the American Revolution couldn't have succeeded. If there's going to be an ecological revolution in this country or this world, hopefully it's we're at the point where we have learned to do it peaceably. And that the way that we take the power from those in control is to stop being in, in, imprisoned by their systems. And their number one system of imprisonment is not the, the market per se of mass-produced food and mass-produced items, etc. Those are entangling webs. But the prison itself is the, 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 the monetary system itself. Their money, their way in the form of debt. And if we're going to use their money, we need to use their money as money, not as debt instruments. If, if you're going to debt in this country, you better be, be, better be buying real property with it, 
or you better be establishing systems that are profitable where the system itself services the debt. That's a business. Establishing a farm, establishing a business, etc., with debt, and that system itself within its first year or two generates enough revenue to service the debt as a system, that is a regenerative system in economics. And those are the types of things we need to be doing. We need to be doing this full scale all around. Urban farms, small handcrafting, all the permaculture stuff, yes. But we need people running businesses with a different mindset if this is going to work. We need a person that's, you know, like, I don't want to go to Walmart, but it's affordable and they have the shit that I'm looking for and no one else does. We need people to step up and say, what shit do you want that's not available and figure out how to provide that for people. We need to develop our own economies. It doesn't matter if it's Bitcoin or silver or U.S. Federal Reserve notes trading inside that economy. It's that it trades inside that economy. That the people around each other seek each other first versus a solution from outside. And that importation into economies are based on genuine need. And we start thinking about a trade balance. Not a trade balance just between the United States and China or the United States and Japan. We can measure in billions of dollars into the negative for us. But trade imbalances in our own economies, how much of our little local group, our neighborhood, how much of what we purchase is coming from more than 25 miles away? And not just the product. Like It, it doesn't really matter that the product is coming from that far. Where's the money going? If the product comes in, but the, 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 the main revenue, so if a reseller of a product lives on your street, And that product's being imported. It's not as good as it being produced locally, but you can't produce cocoa beans in Vermont. And you're not going to. Not in any way that makes sense from an energy standpoint. But if that person, if you're doing business with a person that's doing their own custom cocoa blends on your street, the money stays there. Now, a piece is going out to buy the supply, but the money that you pay them, most of it, the profit, the, the, the gain, stays in your economy. And if that's spent back to someone else, right, if we start to build those types of economies, we need to build those economies, we need to build the productive systems, we need to produce our own food, fibers, and medicines right in our own backyards, our own meat in our own backyard. Our backyard can be a county, for God's sake. It can be a group of counties, a small region within a state. But if we don't get down to that size, then, then this lifeboating thing that's been floated around here, pun not intended, is just the, it's just something to talk about. These are the actions. And, you know, it makes me think of something that seems totally unrelated, but I'm so excited about. I, I just saw today that the Pennsylvania Oath Keepers have, have, have seen the problems I've talked about, why I left, as a founding member, I defected and left the Oath Keepers and said, I'm done with these people. The, 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 the Pennsylvania chapter filed redress with Stuart Rhodes to say, hey, you, got, you need to talk to us about what's going on. You need to at least acknowledge us. And, and basically, Stewart did nothing. So the Pennsylvania Oath Keepers said, fine, we're done. We're leaving, but we're not going to stop being Oath Keepers. We're going to be the Pennsylvania Oath Keepers with no association to the national organization. And I look at that and I think, well, that's how it should have been in the first place. That's how it always should have been because it's modeled on militia. And militia is about you take care of your own. You know, if, 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 there, if all the responders to Hurricane Katrina, came from the state of Louisiana. And if Louisiana had mounted its own response immediately instead of waiting on the federal government, a lot of the bad things that happened wouldn't have happened. And I don't mean the disaster. I mean the way that people came in and did things like took defenseless people 
or people that were defending their property and made them defenseless by seizing their guns because they were from New York and they didn't know Louisiana law. And when the order came, they just did it. Because in Louisiana, it wouldn't have happened with a Louisianan. We need to start thinking that way. You are going to take care of your neighbor's backyard better than you're going to take care of the backyard of someone you've never met 20 states away where you will never step foot. It's human nature. And, and instead of lifeboating, we need to be building these islands of life. That, that's that's kind of where I see this evolving to. And it is a form of anarchism. It's, it, it's, 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 it's understanding that we can't wait for the system to fix the problem. We can't ask the system to fix the problem. We can't go into the system and use the system to fix the problem. We just need to get shit done. And we need to start looking out for each other. And you need to realize the guy that you have political differences with across the street from you is a hell of a lot more your brother than some prick in D. DC, who is on the payroll of the people that are feeding your children poison. They're, they're, they have them in schools that are indoctrination centers, and they don't give a shit whether there's a D or an R. They just care that the check clears. And you're going to have to fix your own shit. And that's what we're all going to have to do. That's a revolution. And that's a revolution. The people that own this country own this country and they own you right now fear because it's you saying I will no longer be your indentured servant take your change and stick them up your ass I'm going to fix my problem that's how I see this so I don't disagree with Ben at all I just see it as a bigger thing a bigger movement it's something that people need to grasp for themselves and I'm not your leader in this movement and no one else is either we don't need a national organization we need you in your backyard stepping up and saying I'm gonna get shit done I'm gonna look after the land as far as I can see it from my porch I'm at least going to start here because if I don't do it nobody else will but if I'll do it maybe some of these people will do it with me Those are my thoughts. Anyway, with that, I want to go ahead and take our next question. This is for Erica Strauss, and we'll bring down the uh, the excitement and passion here a little bit. But it's still a cool thing, and I am going to have my opinion because the question is about my favorite feathered fowl, ducks. The question is uh, for Erica Strauss and Jack Steak too. Hubby and I are getting ducks next season and can't decide whether we want Ancona or Muscovy flock. Please help us decide. Erica, what say you? And then you can bet I'll have some of my own thoughts. Well, hello, TSP listener who wants to know about keeping a flock of ducks and which breed might best suit you. I'm sorry, I didn't get your name, but I will tell you what I can. First of all, deciding between the Ancona and the Muscovy duck breeds is a little bit like deciding between apples and oranges. Both breeds are great, but they're different birds with different needs and different advantages. So let me talk a little bit about each breed and do kind of a comparison and contrast for and then I will offer my advice. So briefly, a Muscovy duck does not have the same mallard-derived genetics as pretty much all the other domestic ducks. It's a bit of a duck oddity, really. It roosts in trees, it doesn't really care quite so much about water, and it doesn't quack in that traditional duck way. 
Now, I can tell you from a culinary perspective that Muscovy meat is one of the most delicious things in the entire world. When I did catering events, I would often special order in a whole breast of a Muscovy drake, and frequently just the breast would be two pounds. A whole Muscovy drake, the whole the whole carcass weight, is going to dress out at about seven pounds, and they are quite good foragers. So as a meat bird, I think the Muscovy is an excellent choice. Now, on the other hand, Muscovy are not particularly exceptional as egg layers, laying only about 180 eggs a year. Now, to put this in perspective, a really good hybrid line of egg-laying ducks like Jack probably uses on his farm to raise duck eggs commercially is going to lay somewhere between 250 and 300 eggs per year. So when you sort of have that comparison, you can see that 180 is just not that great. So if your goal is to start up some sort of a little mini duck egg side hustle, I think that when it comes to the Muscovies, you're going to be a little disappointed in that aspect of the breed. Now, on the other other hand, the Muscovies are very well regarded as some of the most consistently broody ducks, and they make very good dedicated parents. So again, if your goal is primarily a consistent source of delicious meat that you can raise sustainably on a moderately sized plot of land with some seasonal egg production as kind of a bonus, then I think the Muscovy is a great choice in breed. Okay, now on to the Ancona. I can speak to this breed in detail because this is what I raise. First, I adore the breed, so let me just admit right up front to being completely biased. The Ancona is a very interesting bird. It's listed as critically endangered by the Livestock Conservancy, but because of some recent good press from folks like Carol Deppi, who wrote extensively about the advantages of her Ancona flock in her book Resilient Gardener, the breed has been gaining in popularity. That's both good and bad. It's good because the availability of Anconas is increasing, but it's bad because you really want to do your research at this point and make sure you're getting the quality of ducks or ducklings that you want. Now, if you don't care if your Anconas conform to an exact breed standard in their patterning, for example, then just having a happy flock of pet quality Ancona ducks isn't an issue. And honestly, that's what I do. But if you think it might be fun in the future, to show your Ancona ducks, then you're going to want to seek out a breeder who's delivering consistently handsome ducklings. Now, this kind of care about the selection of the line is true with any livestock, of course, but the current state of Ancona breeding and the establishment of defined rules about what an Ancona duck should look like is a bit in flux right now. So just know going into it that that's something you might want to research if you do opt for this breed. In terms of homestead productivity, our current flock is nine ducks, down from a peak of 13, I think, earlier this year. The females in lay put out an egg a day like clockwork from spring to fall, and then they take the winter off. My limited experience is that Ancona females go broody intermittently, but make excellent mothers. Most of our current flock are children from one drake and two females, but raised by one particularly attentive female. Meat on the Ancona is excellent in flavor, but this is a medium weight, dual purpose bird. So don't expect a huge quantity of meat per carcass. The carcass weight, even for a big mature male, is going to top out at about four to five pounds. And if you slaughter females or call the boys before they really fill out, then your carcass weight is going to be even less. 
Like all the Mallard-derived lines, Anconas need to be raised with consistent access to water they can bathe in or at least get their head in. In addition to being really adorable to watch your ducks paddle around in a mini pond of some kind, a proper bath helps keep your birds cleaner and healthier. And because you've said you want this flock to be somewhat self-sustaining, you should know that your flock will breed much more successfully and much more frequently with access to water. Now they don't need a pond, so don't worry about that. And your kiddie pool solution will work just fine. But do know that for a flock of 10 ducks, you're probably looking at three, maybe even four kiddie pools, and you're going to be dumping and refilling these probably daily. You might be able to get away with every other day dumping and refilling of the pools, but like all type of mallard ducks, the Anconas make their water sloppy and disgusting quickly. Now, the duck manure that winds up in those kiddie pools isn't hot the way that chicken manure is, and fertigating your orchard and perennial shrubs with this poopy water will really help those trees in your orchard thrive, so I think this is a great idea. I can't speak to how the Muscovy breed is going to work with the rest of your creatures, your cats, your dogs, your chickens, and your bees, but I can say that once we moved our Anconas to their own enclosure away from our chickens, we had no issues at all with them in relation to any of our other animals. One last note about Anconas. There is some individual variation, but I would say that typically this is a fairly quiet breed of duck. My neighbor has runners and some kind of crested duck, and those ducks never shut up. Our Anconas mutter amongst themselves, and there is the occasional loud quack, 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 quack if they squabble or get amorous. But other than that, they're fairly discreet by duck standards. But if stealthy ducks are very important for whatever reason, perhaps your neighbors are not immediately in love with the idea of ducks, then the Muscovies are so quiet that your neighbors probably won't even know you have them. So if stealthiness is important, score one for the Muscovy. Okay, so of course I can't tell you which breed is best for you. Only you know your specific goals and whatnot for your ducks. But it doesn't sound like full-on meat production is your primary goal here. On the other hand, it does sound like a system of fertigation with duck water, which supports your orchard, is important in adding ducks to your homestead. So based on this and based on your location in the often drizzly Pacific Northwest, which I know very well, I do think that you would find the Anconas an excellent addition to your homestead. However, there's really no reason you can't get both breeds. A male and two females of each line would be an excellent way to start. You might notice the Muscovies start ripping up the fruit in your fruit trees after they fly up there or escaping the paddocks, and you might decide after a year or two that really the Anconas are a better fit for the orchard paddocking system you want to use. Or you might find that the ability of the Muscovies to fly and be a little bit more self-sufficient makes them less prone to predation and want to go all Muscovy based on that. Or you might just keep a mixed flock forever, but there's really no harm in trying both breeds out. I don't think there's anything to suggest that they won't get along just fine, and they might even flock together. So I'll take the blame here. You just go tell your husband that Erica says you should get all the ducks, and I'll be over here running away before he can catch me. 
<laughs> okay, guys, this has been Erica, duck enabler extraordinaire from Northwest Edible Life. Come say hi anytime at nwedible.com or facebook.com slash nwedible. Thank you so much, Jack, for making this whole thing possible. Thank you, TSB community, for your questions. Keep them coming, and I will talk to you uh, in the next week or two. Bye. Uh, let me start off by saying I disagree with nothing that, that Erica has to say um, at all. And I think it was a great tutorial on ducks. But I actually think you might, if your goal is the fertigation of your orchard, be better off with her anconas or any mallard breed duck. And, and this is why. Our muscovies are homebodies. They kind of hang out on the front porch, so to speak. Our main flock of, of, of mixed breed, we have runners, we have Metzer 300s, we have Rowans, we have Khaki Campbells, we have Cayugas, we have Swedish. They all act the same way. They go wherever the water is. The Muscovies, if there's any water, they, they just, okay, I got a drink. Okay, I can take a bath. Okay, cool. All right, there's food here. There's shade. All right, that's it. I'm not going any further. They don't really range. Where I can tell you that wherever I put the kiddie pools, That is where the rest of the ducks will be. And if you want to shift them through your orchard, right, then they're going to do that. They're going to behave that way. The next thing is, if you're when you say paddock shift, you didn't say if you meant it by, I'm just going to move their water and expect them to relate to it, or you're actually going to do something like electro-net fencing or what have you, or actually create some permanent fencing with some gates and kind of herd them in for the day and then herd them home at night. If you want to do that, your mallard-derived uh, ducks, they herd like goats, man. In fact, better than goats. Especially if they know there's something good where they're going. You go out there and you, they see the water and you get them, maybe feed them some sprouts or something. A little, get a little stick. Or I have my, what I call my broom of doom. I need to put that in a, in a, a Duck Chronicles episode. It's a little hard, hard brush, uh, push broom for, uh, for, for the porch. And I call it the broom of doom, man. And when I get that broom of doom out, they're going wherever I want them to go. Muscovies, a lot of times they'll like they'll just sit there and you walk and try to push them and you walk right up to them and they won't move till you reach down and try to pick them up, or they just kind of walk a little bit and then they just kind of double back around. They're they're not like chickens, but they're a little harder to herd. They have a little bit more of their own attitude. They're more like a donkey, right? A mule. They just I don't want to go. I'm not going to go today. So if moving them around and getting them to go where you want them is more important, your mallard derived ducks will do better. From a meat production standpoint, this is, I mean, I'm back to Darby Simpson here. A purpose-bred animal is the best for the purpose. A, 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 a jumbo peckin is the duck if you want to produce meat. Getting anything close to a dual breed, you're looking at big ducks. So you're looking at Cayuga, you're looking at Swedish, etc., Muscovies are a great meat bird, but a female muscovy is not much bigger than your average mid-sized duck. They're going to be a little bit bigger than your Ancona, Anconas will be. A little bit bigger than your Ancona males, okay, not your females. Um, but a muscovy drake will go 12 pounds on the, on, the, on the webbed foot, so to speak, and will produce a carcass of around 8 to 9 pounds, uh, especially if left to go to full maturity so you get a bigger meat yield. That said, this is this was my concern when I read your question. Meat production on any real level through flock reproduction in your environment is probably not worth the effort. 
if the ducks happen to go broody, raise some ducks, and it's more than you want, and you cull them, and it's a byproduct, fine. But I would not, in a small kind of mid-urban to slightly rural, kind of moving toward the mid-sized property, use ducks as a primary meat animal. I would tell you the best thing you can do it would be probably if you want a sustainable meat animal where you have the same animal, they're producing their own offspring, you're raising them up, is quail. Quail are probably the best meat option you could, you could put into your system. They certainly can be integrated into your existing system along with the ducks. I'm not saying don't go ducks, get, go quail, because what I'm saying is get the ducks, understand what they can do, you get a meat byproduct, but if you want consistent meat production, go with quail. Or learn how ducks work, learn about brooding ducks, and then every year at the optimal time of year to do it, Order 25, 30 jumbo peckins, put them on past, you know, put them, brood them for a couple of weeks, get them outside, get them into a tractor, get them into a system, give them that abundant period to, to rotate through and slaughter them all wholesale, and you got to duck every other week. And then you still have your, like, like those are the ways to do this. You're, you're not going to get a 10 duck flock to produce any significant amount of meat from reproduction. Now, I do have one concern with what Erica gave you advice on, and that is, you know, getting both. Okay, the problem is Muscovies, especially Muscovy drakes, will breed with your other ducks. That's fine if you want meat because the resulting offspring will be mules. And they're a, a sterile duck that won't lay an egg. They look kind of funky, kind of weird. It can go the other way, but usually most of the crossbreeding between Muscovies and, and Mallard ducks is the male Muscovy will breed anything. They breed a cat if they could get away with it. They really would. Um, so that kind of messes with the you, you, you're saving fertile eggs, right? It kind of messes with what's, what's going on there. Now the other option would be you get a couple a couple Muscovy females and they're your brooders, okay? And so you have your, your flock of Anconas and maybe two Muscovy girls. And then if you give those girls eggs when they go broody, you will have a mom duck that will raise your baby ducks for you. And, yeah, you could get some infertile Muscovy eggs and, and what have you, but what you could do is when your girls go broody, separate them with a barrier from your other girls. Let your other girls lay some eggs. Take away whatever the Muscovies have. Mark the eggs you give the Muscovies. Now you know they're all on Kona eggs. Give them back to your Muscovy girls and check their nest every day and remove any unmarked eggs. Those are new eggs. The good thing about that is you'll be in a single hatching frequency. Normal ducks take about 28 days to hatch. Muscovies take 35 So if you have both under a burden, we've done it, and it works, you have this very spread out hatching period. So that would be how to make that work. As far as the Muscovies getting up in your fruit trees and flying up there and all, it's probably not going to happen. The drakes get so big that by the time they're like a year and a half old, they ain't flying nowhere. The girls can fly, clip their wings. Clip their wings, no problem whatsoever. Now we have some young Muscovies that, that have grown up, and you know, they're like you know, sub-adults right now that we didn't clip their wings, those birds can fly. I'm, I'm going to tell you, that they fly from one end of the property to the other. They fly big circles around. And since they haven't been a problem, even when we're paddock shifting them, even if they go where we don't want the ducks, there's one or two ducks over there, who cares? What they end up doing is, well, nobody else is here, and they go back. 
Um, but muscovies can fly, and you do have to think about the implications of that, getting into your neighbor's yard or whatever. But clipping their wings ends that, and it's a very easy thing to do. You can look it up on YouTube. When we clipped our muscovies, the day we brought them home, we clipped their wings as soon as they came out of the carrying crate. And uh, then they were put into a, a shed. They were held in there for a day. Then they were left into a confined area for a day, and then they were let free, and they, they adapted right on, right on to the place. Like they, you know, Now they act like they've been here. I will tell you one concern about muscovies with handling. Uh, with all ducks, you need to be careful when you're handling them. They have claws, and when they're freaking out, they can really open you up. You're not going to probably end up bleeding to death or anything, but they can do a nasty job of scratching you up. That's true of all ducks. Muscovies, double what they're capable of. They are the strongest birds, pound for pound, I have ever put my hands on. And their claws, because they're a perching bird, are borderline raptor-ish. So if you're going to have to be handling these birds quite a bit, make sure you're comfortable with... If you do it... I mean, I've gotten clawed like one time uh, since we've gotten these birds and had to handle them quite a bit, but I kind of know what I'm doing there. Uh, in fact, we were wrapping a duck's wings uh, when I got clawed, and so it was kind of an unusual situation. We had a bird with angel wing we were correcting. Um, but you can't go wrong with either one, but I don't think that it's really a meat solution for you. And then don't underestimate the psychological component of killing a duck that you've raised from a baby. It's especially from your own flock. It's not it's not as simple as having birds that come in as meat birds. They're always going to be meat birds. You knew they were going to be meat birds. You have no emotional ties to them. It's graduation day chop, right? Um, cuz I mean another meat option for you is chickens. Order Cornish cross chickens and, you know, raise 25, 30, 50 of those a year. It's it, it's the, the regular breeds of ducks, they taste good, but you get a pretty small meat yield. That's all I'm saying. Uh, let's take another one. This one for Nick Ferguson. And this question is from Claire. Claire wants advice for developing understory uh, in her uh, apple orchard. So she has a... Uh, uh, and she wants to develop understory plants and alley ground cover in an herbicide-free commercial orchard. She's managing an experimental half-acre herbicide-free plot uh, of Nittany apples on Bud 9 and Geneva 11 rootstock in southeastern Pennsylvania Zone 6B. And she wants some advice on the understory there and the alley. So the alleys, for those aren't familiar with the term, it's what it sounds like. you got rows of trees and you got an alley between those rows. Uh, so, Nick, what kind of help can we get here for Claire? Hey there, Nick Ferguson calling in to answer Claire's question about her half-acre experimental apple plot. Now, this sounds like a fun project, and there's a couple things to consider here. <clears throat> I'll go ahead and answer the question quickly with my top picks for planting underneath these apples as far as ease of maintenance, um, height, and how much they'll handle some abuse, like walking on them, driving on them, and occasionally mowing. So here we go. Partridge pea, comfrey, daffodils or narcissus, oregano, lemon balm, tansy, any of the herbs in the Artemisia genus like wormwood and southernwood, hyssop, dandelion, beans and peas now some of these grow really really low like oregano and dandelion so it 
it's really going to depend on your situation and what you specifically need. Now, there are some other things that we can do. What you might want to do is directly underneath the apples plant the taller things and then successively come out into that laneway with shorter growing herbaceous plants like Dutch white clover, crimson clover, medium red clover, alliums, echinacea, basil, garlic, dill, fennel, lavender, chamomile, wallflower, sweet woodruff, pansy. Pansy is going to help repel Japanese beetles. Uh, marigolds are going to help repel nematodes, so if you have root not nematode issues. Anything in the aster family is good. They're going to bring in uh, beneficials. Yarrow, sweet alyssum, horseradish, borage, nasturtium, carrots, chard, kale, asparagus, beets. Chives are said to help prevent apple scab. I know I said nasturtium. Nasturtium repels coddling moth, which will be handy. Um, Another thing that uh, repels coddling moth, well, not repels it, but draws in predators of coddling moth and light brown apple moth is parsnip. And that's a great thing to have planted there because it's not really going to compete much. Um, Where was I? Foxglove is reported to help protect your tree from disease and actually help your apples last longer once they're picked. Now, there are other things that you can plant in that row if you're looking for perennial fruiting type things to help hold those spaces, but you might not be interested in this. The people that you are working for might not be interested, but anything in the ribes genus. I'm not sure if you're allowed to plant any things like gooseberries and currants. Um, I know there's a couple states up there that... It's actually illegal because it's a disease vector. So you've also got thornless blackberry. Let me think what else. Uh, Nanking cherry would also be pretty good. You know, there's a lot of things you can plant under there. But like I said, if I were picking some things, partridge pea is going to handle drought. It's going to get about three or four foot tall and not a whole lot grows underneath it. It's nitrogen fixer. It will self-seed. That stuff should do great. It'll it'll completely drown out any grass grown underneath it. Comfrey, of course, is great. Now, the comfrey is not going to play well with the partridge pea because it'll get shaded out. So, you know, you might want to nix the partridge pea or put the partridge pea somewhere that it's going to get cut more often. Um, so you might want to go with something like comfrey, daffodils, alliums, you know, some of those shorter growing things, what I would do is I would look at this whole list and pick and choose the things that you think are going to work for you and make up a seed mix, throw it out there, maybe toss a little bit of mulch on it, maybe just drill it. You can probably plant these in the early spring when you have good, reliable, cool weather and ample rainfall to, you know, keep them moist until they're established and just broadcast seed them. And, you know, the the ones that will grow well for you will do their job. They're going to grow. 
And the ones that are inappropriate will just not succeed. They'll just die off and they'll not grow in the spots where the seeds get tossed. So another thing I would suggest is learn how to make good compost and use compost tea on your orchard section and some piles of wood chips, just like a small pile under each tree. I'm not talking about mulching the whole space, but just getting a little pile under each tree or so and inoculating that with some good mycorrhizal life, that's going to really help those trees with disease resistance. Now, I'm going to post this plant list on my website under my resources section, and that website is permacultureclassroom.com. So I'd suggest head over there, get this whole list, do a little bit of research and Google Foo into each one of these plants, and pick and choose what you think is going to work best for your situation, and, and go to town with seed and that stuff. It sounds like a really fun project. I'd love to hear some more. Um, I'd love to hear some follow-up on, on how this goes for you. I'm Nick Ferguson. Thank you guys for all the awesome questions. Keep them coming. Head over to permacultureclassroom.com to learn more about me and what I do and check out upcoming events and appearances. Y'all have a great weekend. So what I would tell you is in Pennsylvania, there's a couple things that uh, Nick had on his list that will do dramatically well, and some will show up probably without even trying. And, and one of those is plantain, especially a broadleaf plantain, uh, and, and clover, specifically Dutch or New Zealand white. Those are going to be fantastic. Um, you, you can't hardly find a field uh, in, in, in Pennsylvania that's been you know properly grazed or managed in any way uh, that's not full of clover. It, it's just... It's like clover ground zero. And I think that would make a good basis for your laneways. That's just like the only addition that I'll throw on there. Next question and final question of the day, because remember we're cutting these shows in half now, six to seven uh, uh, per week. Uh, that way every every uh, council member is on every other week, basically. It might not always work out that way, but that's the goal. Uh, this question is for Tim Glantz, and it's a pretty simple one. It says, are the cheap Chinese ham radios really as good a deal as they appear to be, or is there a catch? Tim, what say you as our resident expert on ham radio? Hey, Jack. Tim Glantz from Old Groucher Surplus here with an answer for a question about uh, all the cheap Chinese ham radios out there on the market and if they're really a good deal. And the answer is yes and no. For what they do, Buying a cheap little radio for under $50, and in some cases under $30, it's pretty amazing. And they are great for people to get to play with, to learn about radio, to experiment with it, and to decide what you like in a radio and what features you don't like. However, they have many faults and many drawbacks as well. Uh, to get a radio that cheap... They cut every single corner imaginable. There is uh, zero attempt at waterproofing or even moisture sealing or even dust proofing. I've taken some of them apart, and they're, even your, your your cheapest of your you know name brand radios will have at least a plastic membrane behind the keypad to you know keep dust and you know a light mist of water or something else out. Uh, these don't even have that. 
they uh, cut a lot of corners so that some of your technical features don't work. I've seen some where your uh, CTSS or DCS tones didn't work right, especially when scanning. They cut corners by reducing the amount of metal. Uh, usually they're not a metal case, but a plastic one, and just have a metal back. It's not a big enough heat sink, so they overheat badly, especially if you're in a hot climate and you're transmitting even more than just a slight little bit. Uh, when they overheat, then the display blanks. And uh, they're generally buggy. So here's the advice I give people in buying the radios. If you're just getting into communications and you want to experiment and you want to learn about it, these radios are great because you can get them and you can experiment and you can learn and you're not out a lot of money. For anything where I think this actually might be a life safety issue, you know, if I want a radio that's going to keep me informed, you know, when times are actually bad, or if I've got a radio that's going in my get-home bag or my bug-out bag or in my vehicle emergency kit that I might be depending on for information to listen to that could be very important and save my life, or information, you know, passing information back home to loved ones or coordinating anything like that, I do not advise them. You know, you can go to, you can go cheap and get a radio in the $100 to $150 range that will be a whole lot more rugged, a whole lot more reliable, and much more bug-free than the cheap radios, and it's well worth spending the money. So, that's how I advise people. Now, if you want a bunch of small radios to hand out to people at time of disaster, you know, if you said, hey, I know, you know, I'm in an area that gets a lot of hurricanes and I want to be able to have five or ten radios to hand out to my neighbors, then some of these cheap radios are good for that because you figure you want them to last a week or two and that's it. But if you're doing that, don't buy some of the ones that are keypad programmable with all the keypads and everything else. And those you want to buy what I call an operator radio, which is going to have an off-on off on volume switch and a channel selecting switch and nothing else. Because if you take one of these little, little bail things that you can program from the keypad and everything else and you hand it to somebody who's never used a radio much before, they're going to you know, push buttons, get it into a menu setting, change the channel, maybe change it to Chinese voice, and they're going to be totally lost and not know what to do and the radio will be useless to them. So, you know, the, I hear people getting those to say, hey, I'm going to hand these little $25 radios out. If people haven't been trained in practicing those little radios, they'll be nothing more than paperweights. And they're so light, they won't even be a good paperweight. So that's my, that's my take on it. They're great for learning about radio, for playing with it, and to learn what you really want. But once you've had one and you've messed with one a little while, if you're planning in your preps to use radio, in any kind of a serious situation, I would look at upgrading. Uh, the one I really like, you know, that's still in the affordable price range, is the Yaesu FT60. It has an actual aluminum case on it. It's built a mil-spec 810 for water resistance, dust resistance, and uh, it's just a much more well-crafted radio. I could take that radio, lay one of the $25 bail things out on the table, and smash it to bits with the Yaesu. Uh, that's the difference in quality. So you get what you pay for, and uh, just keep that in mind and, and choose the right radio for your situation, and hope that helps. Thanks for the question, and thanks for the show as always, Jack. In other words, Tim Glantz just became a permaculturist and said it depends. Um, 
So that's it. This is going to be the end of today's show. It'll be a little bit shorter, a little bit uh, different, and get us the ability for me to do a better job of the questions that come in for the council. Some people I get a ton of questions for. Some people I have to scrape to get them a question every week. And sometimes I give them a question I think maybe we could have done better for them. So this will help with that because sometimes I have to make questions. And I really don't want to make questions for the council members. I want your questions for the council members. So... You know, the people we didn't hear from this week, Paul Wheaton, John Pugliano, etc., they'll all be on the next uh, call-in show. Again, it won't be next week. Remember, next week I am running a workshop. I will either do a show Monday and Tuesday or I'm going to go with the kind of guerrilla podcasting YouTube videos all week long. And I think that's what I'm going to do because Nick's going to be here. I've got a, a handyman helping me out with some stuff. I've got a lot of things to get done. And I think it might be fun for you guys to see what actually goes into one of these events. And, and for those that aren't coming, to get a little bit more uh, of an understanding of what we're doing. I've had a ton of questions from people about this coming event. Will you guys video everything and put it online for those of us that can't come? Uh, no. No. <laughs> because the amount of work to do that is is inconceivable. I do have... Um, uh, John Shimada coming, and John is going to be in charge of videoing, and he's going to do a ton of videoing, and we're going to put a lot of video up. Specifically, what we will video are the presentations inside. That's going to be the easiest stuff to video. So we have a presenter, like you know, John Pugliano talking about finance, or uh, maybe Nick Ferguson talking about function stacking, stuff like that. And we'll certainly get video of like the construction of the container gardens and the video of like a walk through the greenhouse and stuff like that. But we can't just video three days of everything that goes on. It's just not possible. Or even all the instruction. But we're going to get some good video up for you guys this time. In fact, I went out of my way and made a deal with John to get him down here to do that work. And it's going to be very, very light on the editing, like none. Right, really. I mean, it's going to be like, it's going to run through like Vegas just to convert to a better file size for upload. That, that's about it. Um, so there'll be some rough stuff in it and all, but we'll have, you know, presenters mic'd up and things like that. So we'll be having some of that come out for you. Anyway, as we head into this weekend and I head into a workshop where I'm going to be hanging out with about 50 people from this audience because by the time you have staff members and, and everything else and, and entertainment and, and what have you, you end up with, you know, a class of 34 being 50 people on property. Um, I just want to kind of leave you, you know, since I'm not probably going to be coming back with a podcast till the following week, with some words of advice on what we talked about today, which is getting shit done. Keeping in mind the balance that I always talk about, not losing yourself in your work. Remember that no one's going to do what you care about as good as you will. That's the re that's like the number one struggle with entrepreneurship is when you start to grow a business to a point where you have to hire employees is is understanding your employee will not work as hard as you they will not take quality as seriously as you they will not be as passionate about as you they never will they never will they're not going to no matter they can be the best employee you could ever get they can be dedicated hardworking serious on the on the quality control big on customer service I mean like where you just go this is great. But they'll never do it your way, and they'll never do it to the level that you'll do it. And it'll never mean as much to them, because it's not theirs, it's their job. And that's true about everything you care about. Every political cause that you have, every social cause that you have, every environmental cause you have, the, the, the desire for your family to be prepared, instilling a culture of preparedness in your community, 
all of these things. This No one's going to care about the parts of it that you care about the way that you will. So no one will do it the way that you will. And in many instances, if you don't do it, no one will. It, it, it's really up to you. I mean, my goal in this show is a lot. I have a lot of goals. But I have. A, if I had to give the overall encompassing goal, it is to make people understand that indeed you are the captain of the ship that is your life. That there is there is no one else in charge, and no one else is going to be in charge because they're too busy running their own ship, right? And and that that is it, until you understand that you keep waiting for someone else to fix shit. That's why you. That's why some of you guys you're still hung up on. Well, we get the right people in Washington and they'll fix it. No, they won't. No, they won't. Even if they want to fix it, they're not going to fix it. And most of them don't want to fix it. They want power. You know, or if we can just get the right people on the school board, the school will be better. Well, maybe it'll get better test scores, but it'll, it'll still be an indoctrination center. If you want your children educated, really educated, even if they're going to go to public school, you need to step in and do a lot of educating. Beyond what the school does, outside of what the school does. You need to be honest with your kids and explain to them, this is a hurdle that you have to get through in life, but don't lose yourself in it. You know, don't, don't shove your kids into 19 advanced placement courses their last two years in high school because it's going to save money on college before you know whether they really even need to be in college in the first place. There's so much opportunity out there. Every time I turn around, it seems to me that I see somebody that stepped outside of the system and created their own business. The guy that does work for me here named John uh, is a perfect example. He's a handyman. He just hires himself out to do little jobs here and there. You know, and is, he's happy. I, I think if he went as an employee somewhere, he could probably make more money have more benefits from the standpoint that we think of them on a paycheck, but I, I think he'd be a miserable, miserable person. And he, you know, when he comes here and he does work for me, he does so many other little things without being asked, just to be helpful. Yesterday he brought our garbage cans in from the curve. He didn't need to do that. You know why he did it? Because he likes working with us. Because he's happy to be here. Because he's happy with his life. His life's not perfect. He's not a rich man, but he's happy. And some of you guys that are coming to this workshop, you'll meet John. He's going to be working with other John building the greenhouse uh, and working on the greenhouse when John's teaching classes in microgreens. But there's another example, John, Pug uh, John, John Dowie, who's going to be teaching a microgreens class. Those of you that are coming to that class, you, you will be able to take the knowledge that John gives you if you want to and if you're willing to hustle and go home and develop a business and, and have product for sale in 14 to 21 days. Seriously, think about that. Think about how much stinking opportunity is out there. And to do things for money that don't suck, that aren't evil, that aren't harmful, that don't destroy the planet, that don't take advantage of other people, that don't require you to go on your knees and grovel before a boss or a, a council member and beg for permission, that allow you to say, you know what, I'm going to take a freaking week off and, and, and I'm gonna, let me check with my boss. Oh yeah, I said it was okay. This is this is America. This is this. I, I know I have you guys in other countries, and I really appreciate you. But I'm talking to my brother and sister Americans right now. This country was never supposed to be the screwed up oligarchy that it is, and I guess that it was inevitable that it would end up here because the success would lead to complacency. But it's not what America is. 
And it's not what we're supposed to be as an example. All of you in the rest of the world, I'm embarrassed by the way my countrymen conduct themselves when America is supposed to be the land of opportunity. Well, it still is. It's just a matter of getting your ass up and getting it done. And you can do it. I, you know, you people that write me, well, I'm 50. It's easy for you. Well, dude, I'm in my mid-40s. Okay? Right? It's not like I'm 12 or like 18 or 25 or something. And then you guys that are 25 are like, it's easy because you had a whole life. Dude, I would, I would love to at least like retroactively make my body be 25. I don't know if I'd want to give up all the, the battle scars that got me here and the knowledge that came with them. But God, you have so much opportunity. You're 20, 25 years old. You can hustle at a level I could never keep up with anymore. You know? And then you, you guys that are a little bit older. Bill Wilson was 53 years old when he finally left truck driving. 53. And, you know, it wasn't easy. But he's got a thriving business now. It can be done. And it's not a business for everybody. For some of you, it's, a, you know, the fact that you have a job that's dependable, that you don't completely hate, that you can do and come home every day and be happy about. And when you leave the, the, the office, you're done for the day and you're not worried about it. Maybe it's, 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 it's gardening or volunteering or a cause that you want to make a change with. And just because I stay don't work in the system doesn't mean I'm right. Maybe there's a place for people to work in the system too. There's, there's a place for everyone. But get out and get shit done. Get out and make something happen. And don't do what I say to do. Do what you want to do. I mean, that's, that's the biggest problem we have in this country. We've, we've been convinced that doing what we want is somehow bad or evil or uh, narcissistic or something like that. Let me tell you what. There, there's a quote from Richard Bach in the book Illusions. It's, the best way to avoid responsibility is to say, I've got responsibility. To use the, you know, the perceived obligations that you have to society is an excuse for not pursuing your dreams. That's an excuse. It's a cop-out. Don't make cop-outs. Don't make excuses. Go out, kick life's ass, and get shit done. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or you, they don't.